you have your uh, Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Nehemiah, it's uh, right before Esther, which is right before Job, which is right before Psalms. And so, as you're making your, your way to the book of Nehemiah, we're going we're gonna to start today on a, a series through Nehemiah. Um, when I preach, we're still obviously in a series on Romans, but when I preach, I will be preaching through the book of Nehemiah. A lot of incredible lessons for us in this book. Um, and just to give you an idea before we, before we open it up today, kind of where we are on the biblical timeline. Nehemiah comes on the scene roughly about, uh, well, a little over 400 years before Christ comes to this earth. And um, if you recall, uh, way back in, uh, after the Israelites had been rescued uh, from, uh, from enslavement to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Egyptians and they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they were getting ready to enter into the land that had been promised to, to Abraham, the covenant that God had made with Abraham that his descendants would inherit this land and live in this land and it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses gave them some instructions and in fact gave them a, a list of blessings and curses and Part of that list of blessings and curses is that if you will go into this land and you will, you will keep covenant with me, you will be obedient to what I have commanded you in my word, that you will be able to stay in the land and blessings will come to you. But if you turn your back on me, if you turn your back on my word and you start going another way, then I am going to exile you out of the land. I'm going to pluck you out of that land that I placed you in and you are going to go away into other nations but if you turn back to me, if you turn back to me, I will bring you back into the land. And so that's where we are in Nehemiah. If you remember, after Joshua brings the Israelites into the land and they start to settle in the land, we see the next generation in the book of Judges and generations after. What do we see there? We see a spiral down of the people. You see a common phrase in the book of Judges that the people were not doing what was right in God's eyes according to his word, but they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Sounds a lot like some parts of the church today, doesn't it? And so we come into the book of Kings and there were good kings and bad kings and good kings and bad kings until it just kept spiraling down and the northern kingdom of Israel, they, 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 God kept his promise. He exiled them out of the land. And then the southern king, kingdom of Judah did the same thing. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, the Babylonians came in and they ransacked Jerusalem, burned down the temple, ruined the city, tore down the walls. But the people, after being exiled, turned back to the Lord, and the Lord kept his promise. And he let them come back into the land, and they had started to come back into the land. Not all of them were there yet. But they had started to come back to the land. And by God's grace, the temple had been rebuilt. And that's where we come and are as we come into the book of Nehemiah. Some people are back in the land and Nehemiah is still in exile. And he is, uh, by this time, under the reign of, of uh, Persia, as well as all the people are still in the, under the reign of, of the Persians. So this is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. 
Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, this morning we come to you, a people who are in desperate need to hear from you, hear from your word. Lord, I am, I am a needy man in, in need of your grace to preach your word. Um, I have zero power to change any heart in here. But yet you've not caused, called me to change any hearts. <laughs> you've, called, you've called me to preach your word. And so I ask that you would help me to do that. And we trust that you, Lord, will empower Lord, your word as you've promised, and that you will use it to grow your people, and that you will use it to save the lost. So, Lord, we commit this time to you needing you, needing your grace, and trusting you for it. Do a good work here today, Lord. Bring repentance where there needs to be repentance. Bring comfort where there needs to be comfort. Most of all, Lord, as, as we will see in this text today, bring us a burden, a burden. In Christ's name, amen. How is the health of the church in 2022 in America? Well, every couple of years, Ligonier Ministries conducts a survey titled The State of Theology. The State of Theology. And it's kind of like a CT scan for the visible body of Christ, the church. It reveals theological tumors in the body and whether or not those tumors have grown since the last scan, since the last survey. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this morning, even before I share a couple of the, the survey results, that, that the most recent scans in 2022 are alarming, to say the least. And allow me to share a couple of those tumors that have grown with you. First, agree or disagree? That was, the, that was the question on the survey. Jesus was a great teacher, but was not God. Jesus was a great teacher, but was not God. That was the question. Listen to the answers. 43% of evangelical Christians surveyed agreed with that statement. That Jesus is not God. <laughs> Listen, this isn't 43% of Americans in general. This is 43% of evangelicals who defined on this survey. What that means is those people are saying and professing that the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe. This tumor has grown 13% since 
the last scan in 2020. The second question, agree or disagree? God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Results? 56% of evangelical Christians surveyed agreed with that statement. Let that soak in for you a little bit. The majority of evangelical Christians who think that the Bible, profess that the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe, think that that worship that is void of Jesus Christ in it is acceptable to God. This tumor has grown 14% since the last scan in 2020. And I encourage you to go check out the State of Theology. You're going to see a lot of this kind of stuff in there. Uh, Stateoftheology.com if you want to write down that website um, and go check that out. But what I want to ask you this morning is this. When you hear news like this, how does your heart respond? How does your heart respond to just how sick, how infected, how toxic, how septic at least a part of the visible body of Christ is right now in our generation? How does it respond to the current state of affairs that false and superficial teaching has so infiltrated the church's bloodstream and in some places she is so weak and so frail? Does this burden you is the question. Does it burden you? I'm talking about burden you. Does it tear you up inside that Christ's reputation is being tarnished? Does it tear you up inside that bad theology hurts people and is hurting people? Or does it really not move you all that much at all? Is it really not that big a deal to you? Or maybe it is a big a deal, deal for you, but maybe you're responding in it, to, in it in a different way. See, I'm afraid that for many of us, our hearts are so full of pride and self-righteousness and hardness that we are not moved to humility and brokenness when we hear news like this. That hardness of heart leads us to fire our arrows of disgust at wayward churches and wayward denominations. But it rarely leads us to the throne of grace to plead for a God-wrought reversal of circumstances. A God-wrought reformation like he has been pleased to bring on the church in many times. Regardless of where you are this morning, whether or not that describes you or not, let me just urge you to pay attention this morning because every single one of us has so much to learn from the humility of Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah found himself in a similar situation. The Old Testament church of his day was in trouble and in shame. Under the there had been a lot of great strides that had been made under the sovereign hand of God. Zerubbabel and Ezra the priest had made a lot of wonderful reforms. Many Jews had begun again to return to, to the land that was promised. Some of them were still obviously still in, in exile, but many had started to come back into Jerusalem and Judah. As we talked about earlier, the temple had already been rebuilt. Temple worship had had prescribed by God, had at least in some measure started again. Many of the people who had violated God's express command to not intermarry with the peoples of the land for fear that they would be led astray like Solomon <laughs> into worship of other 
gods. Many of those people had, had repented. See, Reformation had begun, but it was nowhere near completion. In fact, it had cooled off significantly. When Nehemiah comes on the scene, the physical state of Jerusalem was reflective of the spiritual state of the people. They were poor, broken, incomplete, in need of restoration. And as we begin our journey through the book of Nehemiah today, we begin where all revivals or reformations tend to begin. We begin with a man on his knees. Today we are going to look at the first four verses of Nehemiah. And the main point I want you to take away today is this. That reformation begins when God lays a heavy burden on us that drives us to our knees. Speaking of driving us to our knees in prayer. Now, you may, if you're here today and you're wondering, well, what do you mean by reformation? What I mean by that is, is this God-wrought uh, renewal or refreshment that comes upon His people that leads us to love Him more. And that love is evidenced by a greater faithfulness to His Word. And so as we make our way through this passage today, I want you to observe a couple of things. I want you to observe first the shocking news then I want you to see the heavy burden, followed by a couple of points of application. So let's jump in. First, observe the shocking news in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Let's first ask the question, who was Nehemiah? Well, the only information that we actually have about Nehemiah is found right here in the book of Nehemiah. We know that he was a Jew that was born during the time that the southern kingdom of, of Judah was in exile and some of them had already again come, started to come back into the land. We learn in the last verse of chapter 1 that, that he was the cupbearer to the king. And that's speaking of the king Artaxerxes who, who reigned between, uh, he was a Persian king that reigned between 465 and 424 B.C. Now, at first blush, the fact that Nehemiah was a cupbearer, that might not seem that, that significant. But actually, it tells us a lot about his character. You see, he was a man of integrity. He was a man who could be trusted. The job of a cupbearer was, uh, was, was to ensure that the king's drink that the king drank wasn't poisoned. <laughs> And that was one of the real threats of a king's, king's life during this time. So that the cupbearer would actually taste what was in the cup. And if he didn't die, the king would know that the drink was safe to drink. Now what's telling about this is that out of all the people that King Artaxerxes could have chosen to be his cupbearer, he chose Nehemiah, a Jew. He didn't choose one of his very own people. <laughs> What's, that's, that's amazing because when you think about this from a worldly perspective, this was a young man from a people who were involuntarily under King Artaxerxes' rule, who from a worldly perspective might have had something to gain from sabotaging him, yet Nehemiah could be trusted. Oh, that this would be true of us, brothers and sisters, that though our enemies may not believe the message of Christ, that they may not... They may hate his truth, that they would witness a people who are above reproach. That they would witness a people of integrity who could be trusted, who live above the acceptable compromises of this world. 
That they would witness a people like Nehemiah who were living according to the standards of a different kingdom with a different king. That's what we're called to, aren't we, as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to be a people of integrity. But let me just say this, that when we compromise our integrity, when we compromise, we are telling the world that Christ can't be trusted. We are saying that we are showing in those moments that we really don't believe that he is sovereign and in control. And so we have to take control of ourselves to make sure everything works out to our advantage. Oh, may Christ cleanse us from any and every besetting sin like this would, that would cause us to compromise, to hide anything. Nehemiah was a man who, who was a man of integrity who could be trusted. And so we learn right here that he was a Jew in exile. He'd risen to this place of prominence in the royal court. And as we'll see over the next couple of sermons, that that was important for such a time as this. Look at the setting still in verse 1. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. And so the month, he says, was Kislev. And if you don't know that month, you need to look at your calendar. No, that was a month of Kislev is, is a Babylonian name for the months that we know as November and December. And so that's the, the month. The year, he says, was the 20th year, speaking of the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. And so this would have put, put them around him around 445 B.C. at this point. The place, he says, was Susa the Citadel. Now, this was the winter resort for Persian kings. And so it would have been natural for, for, for the cupbearer to be with the king as the king was at the winter resort in Susa. And so naturally, that's where, um, that's where Nehemiah was. And today, it's, that's located in modern Iran today. Verse 2, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So they're coming back from, from Judah, from Jerusalem, coming back to Susa, the citadel. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Now notice that Nehemiah was concerned with two things. He was first, he was concerned with the people. He was concerned with the people, his fellow Jews, his fellow Jews who were in a covenant with God, who had moved back to the, to the promised land. You can imagine him saying to, to his friends who had come, his brothers who had come, how are they doing? Are they flourishing? Are they being faithful to the Lord? Second, he was concerned with the city of Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem was the place that God had chosen out of all the places on the earth that his name would dwell. You may remember in 2 Chronicles 6 where Solomon recounts what God had told his father David about Jerusalem. God had said this, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. See, it was right for Nehemiah to, to ask and be concerned about Jerusalem because God had intimately tied his reputation to that place. God had intimately tied his reputation to Jerusalem and to the people who lived in Jerusalem. Church, don't miss the heart of Nehemiah. He was concerned that God, about God's reputation. He was concerned about God's glory. Let me ask you this morning. Are you concerned about God's reputation? Are you concerned about Christ's glory? If you are, and I hope you are, 
then you must be concerned with the place that God has chosen his name to dwell. You must be concerned with the place that God has intimately tied his reputation to. Unless I be misunderstood this morning, that place is no longer 6,000 miles away in Jerusalem. That place is the visible body of Christ, the church. You must be concerned with the church. See, as messed up, if you remember, as messed up as the church in Corinth was, there was division, there was sexual immorality, there was trivializing of the Lord's Supper, there was all kinds of mess there. You know what Paul calls them at the beginning of, of Corinthians? The church of God. The church of God. He's not making a blanket statement there that everyone in the congregation's converted. They probably weren't. <laughs> but he's alluding to the fact that the church as a whole bears the name of God. And he's concerned about them. And he's concerned about God's reputation being tarnished. And so he writes to them to bring correction for the glory of God. He doesn't sit there and fire arrows at them. No, he goes after them. Church, we need to make sure that we, we are concerned with the visible body of Christ. We need to be concerned that we are concerned with the spiritual state of Grace Church including every member. We need to make sure that we're concerned with the spiritual state of wayward churches that might be down the street from us right now. Why? Because we are a people who are concerned about Christ's reputation. We are a people who are concerned about Christ's glory. And so Nehemiah was a man of, that was concerned and he was concerned about the people and he was concerned about Jerusalem. Well, look at Hananiah's shocking news in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, how long had it been since Nehemiah had gotten an update on his people and on Jerusalem? We don't know. Thirteen years had passed since the close of the book of Ezra and the opening of the book of Nehemiah. Maybe the last thing that he heard, maybe the last thing he heard was that, that the temple had been rebuilt and that there had been a great rededication of, to the Lord. Maybe he filled in the blanks, imagining that, that as things were, were moving in the right direction, imagining that Jerusalem by now must have been bustling to the glory of God. That the revival fires must have still, maybe still be still burning in the hearts of God's people. That the sights and the sounds and the smells of temple worship by now surely must have aligned with what God had prescribed in his word. We don't know. But what we do know is that Nehemiah was blindsided by the news that the people were in great trouble and shame. And that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. Why would he be surprised about the walls? I mean, if you think about it, surely he knew what had happened in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar had come in and ransacked Jerusalem and burnt down the temple and torn down its defensive walls. Well, the reason I think that he was surprised is that he presumed that the walls had been rebuilt. In Ezra chapter 4, we learn that reconstruction of the walls had, had begun at one point. Maybe he had heard word about that. But what Nehemiah might not have known, perhaps because he wasn't, maybe he wasn't the cupbearer by this point, what he might not have known is that King Artaxerxes had decreed that the construction to those very walls had already been halted 
And he had done that because it was a threat to his kingdom. <laughs> the very king that trusted Nehemiah enough to be his cupbearer. And we'll see why that's so important next time. See, the impact of Jerusalem without walls, it can't be understated. The city was vulnerable to enemies. It was a dangerous place to live. It was sparsely populated. It was poor. See, Jerusalem was meant to be a city in a land that was flowing with milk and honey because God had brought blessing upon it. But instead, it was a city flowing with trouble and shame. Now, we're not told the details of the spiritual state of the people, only that they were in great trouble and shame. And if you read the rest of Nehemiah, as we will go through, we learn that this period was not exactly a high period in, in Judah's faithfulness to the Lord. Just as an example of that, when, you, when you, we come into chapter 8, when Ezra comes in and reads the word of God, the people begin to weep. And they weep because of their hearts are pierced. They're convicted because they've not been faithful to the Lord. They've convicted of their sin. And so Hananiah's report showed that the city was in de desperate need of restoration. And the people were in desperate need of reformation. And so we're left with the question, how will Nehemiah respond? And the question that should be looming in each of our hearts right now is how should we respond when we see a church that is in trouble and shame? And to that we will turn. We've seen the shocking news. Now I'd like you to observe the heavy burden in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, the news was like a punch in the gut. Nehemiah, perhaps feeling faint and sick and weak in the knees, sat down. Right there in the presence of, of Hananiah and, and the others who were with him. If there had been any dust and ashes nearby, I, I, can, I can guarantee that he would have put them on his head in a display of intense agony and grief because... Of what he heard. See, Nehemiah uses four words to describe his response, four words that we should pay attention to, four words that scream humility, humility, humility. First, he wept. He wept. You know, weeping is very different than what happens when, whenever we watch a Hallmark movie and our eyes start to water. Weeping is that release valve for a heart that is swelled up with sorrow. Weeping is that dam of the soul that breaks open and pours out the agony that's in it through groaning and tears. It's what happened when David and his men came back from Ziklag, or came back to Ziklag and found that their wives and children had been kidnapped. Can you imagine people you love dearly being kidnapped, taken from you, stolen from you? 1 Samuel chapter 30 says this, that they raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. That was what Nehemiah did. Oh, he wept. Let me ask you, church, when was the last time you wept for a church in trouble and shame? See, what's really convicting is that for many of us, including myself, it's a lot easier to remember the last time I joked and jeered and made fun of a church that's in trouble and in shame because of their waywardness and unfaithfulness to the word of God. 
make no mistake, the well that that kind of response comes, comes from is not a well that's pumped from, from, from the love of Christ. It's the well of pride. Oh, that the Lord would make us a people who weep out of love for him and love for Christ's reputation that is so intimately tied to his visible church. Second, Nehemiah mourned. Mourning is that suppressed, darkened state of the soul that comes along with death and loss and shattered expectations. It's not something that lasts for an hour. Rather, it's something that's prolonged. That's why Nehemiah said that he mourned for days. What's amazing about this is this, that he had probably never even been to Jerusalem before. He had probably never even met the majority of the people who lived there. (laughs) But his identity was so tied to theirs. Their shame was his shame. Their trouble was his trouble. They were God's people. He was a part of God's people. And so he mourned. When was the last time you mourned for the persecuted church in countries that you've never been to with people that you've never met? Church, might it be a blot on us that we have been so influenced by American nationalism and American individualism that we have this identity confusion going on in us? That we have missed that our identity is closer to our brother and sister in in Christ that lives in North Korea that we've never met than it is to our unbelieving next neighbor next door that we see every single day. The point is not that we should love and care about our unbelieving neighbor less. The point is that we should care more about our family in Christ that's in places that we've never been to that are poor and are persecuted. Oh, may the Lord grant us grace to believe that. Believe where our true identity is. Granting us grace to mourn like Nehemiah for brothers and sisters that we've never met who are in trouble and in shame. Third, Nehemiah fasted. He fasted. Biblical fasting is about as far, unless you're the Pharisees, about as far away from pride as you can get. (laughs) It's abstaining from food or food and drink for a period of time for the purpose to pursue God about something. And it's always, always, almost always accompanied by prayer. Notice what Nehemiah said. He said, I continued fasting. This wasn't a one-time 24-hour fast. This was fasting and then fasting again and then fasting again and fasting again. In all likelihood, this went on for about four to five months from the month of Kislev to the month of Nisan, which is March, April. We learned that in chapter 2. See, Nehemiah was a man who was broken, but a man who was broken who was in continual pursuit of God for his people. You don't hear a lot about fasting in the church today, do you? I think that's a blot on us. Maybe you think it's odd. Maybe you think it's relegated to the Old Testament. Maybe you just don't understand its purpose. You may be surprised to learn that fasting is referred to over 70 times in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, we see Jesus stating that his disciples will mourn and fast when he's no longer on earth with them. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, we see the church in Antioch worshiping the Lord and fasting 
That's probably had been going on for some time. And you may remember that was the time where they discerned that it was the Lord's will for Paul and Barnabas to go out on their first missionary journey. Fasting and prayer brought clarity. In Acts 14, 23, we see Paul and Barnabas appointing elders in the newly found, found formed churches and fasting before they commit them to the Lord. And so if you're wondering if fasting is for the church, yes, it's for the church. Fasting is for you. Fasting is for me. John Piper calls fasting an intensifier of spiritual desire. An intensifier of spiritual desire. You could also say that it is a prayer intensifier. When you feel those hunger pangs in your belly when you're fasting, it's a reminder of why you're fasting. And maybe you're, think about this, maybe you're fasting for your child's salvation or somebody's salvation. Or maybe you're fasting for the persecuted church in a specific country that you have some knowledge about. Or maybe closer to home. Maybe you're fasting for the Salazars, which is a church has a church that we support, that they would fast for them, especially to find a place to meet. And those hunger pangs, when you have that purpose, those hunger pangs remind you of why you're fasting and it prods you into this place where you spend the day praying for that specific need. That's why I say it's a prayer intensifier. Nehemiah fasted for a purpose. That purpose was for his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were in trouble and shame and needed the Lord's grace, which naturally leads us to the last word that Nehemiah uses to describe his humble response. Fourth, Nehemiah prayed. Notice he didn't pray to Persian God or gods, but he prayed to the one true living God. He says, the God of heaven. He didn't leave the troublesome circumstances of his people in the realm of his own small, limited wisdom and his own feeble power. No, he lifted them up to the throne of grace, to the throne of the almighty God who could do something about it. Notice he didn't spend his time picking them apart with Hananiah and the others, (laughs) talking about how foolish they were, how they should have had that wall built by now, how they should have done this or they should have done that. No, 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 Nehemiah prayed. And over the course of four to five months of intense fasting and prayer, God's will became clearer and clearer and clearer to the point where Nehemiah knew it was the Lord's will that he needed to put his life on on the line for his people, that he needed to go before the very king who had ordered that halt to the reconstructions of the walls in Jerusalem and that he needed to intercede for his people. What we are going to witness as we make our way through the book of Nehemiah is indeed a man of prayer, a man that is dependent upon his God to do immeasurably more than he could ever do in his own strength. To give you a little trailer of what's to come, through the prayers of Nehemiah, the king's heart would indeed be turned. Through the prayers of Nehemiah, the walls in Jerusalem would again rise again. The evil intentions of those who would try to put a stop to that would fall to the ground And great reforms would be made to the people of God and to the worship of God. But listen, 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 don't miss this. It all starts here. It all starts here. It starts with a heavy burden from God that brings Nehemiah to his knees, weeping and mourning and fasting and praying. 
in a place of humiliation, in a place of lowliness, broken over the people of God and crying out to the throne of God. Let me ask you, do you want to see a revival in our day? Do you want to see God bring about a great reformation upon the visible church? Then no, this is where it starts. It starts in the valley of humiliation. It starts with a heavy burden from God that drives us to our knees in fervent and persistent prayer. Listen to the great doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he says. And in movements of the spirit, the first thing that happens and which eventually leads to a great revival is that one man or a group of men suddenly begin to feel this burden. And they feel the burden so much that they are led to do something about it. They feel this burden from God so much. They feel this burden for God's people, wayward people, and it leads them to fast and pray, fast and pray, fast and pray. It's always good to be reminded of somebody who's actually been through a great revival before. Jonathan Edwards is a man that can speak very clearly to this. He was instrumental in the first great awakening. He writes this, Be much in prayer and fasting, both in secret and with one another. It seems to me it would become of the circumstances of the present day if ministers in a neighborhood would often meet together and spend days in fasting and fervent prayer among themselves. So it is God's will that the prayers of his saints shall be great and the principal means of carrying out on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. Listen to this. When God has something to accomplish for his church, it is with his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayer of his people. Reformation begins when God lays a heavy burden on us that drives us to our knees in extraordinary prayer. As we move into a time of application, let's start there. Let's start with prayer. First point of application, I want want to ask you to, to do this. Pray for a burden. Pray for a burden. Now know this. You and I, we can't manufacture a burden any more than we can manufacture conviction of sin. This is not something that we do. This is something that God does. And so pray for a burden. Pray that we would be burdened by any lingering sin in our congregation. Any lingering disunity. Any lingering gossip. Any lingering withholding of forgiveness, any lingering coldness of heart, any lingering one foot in and one foot out type of mentality, pray for that kind of burden. Pray that we would be burdened for troubled churches in our community. Pray that we would be burdened for the church down the street that doesn't have a pastor right now. Pray that we would be burdened for the church that is infighting and splitting, for the church that's caught in the trance of the enemy. And is obeying the word of the world instead of the word of God. Pray that our hearts would be broken about these things. Pray for a burden that we would be burdened for poor and persecuted churches around the world. As I've already mentioned for the Salazar's church that we support in Costa Rica that are being evicted from their meeting place. I believe coming up December or January. 
that they would find a place to meet. That we would be burdened for secret places that we don't know a lot about, like in China and North Korea and Iran, who live every day with the real reality and sense that they could be beaten or kidnapped or imprisoned or die. Oh, that we would be burdened by these things. That we would be burdened for the things that burden Christ. But let me give you a warning. Beware of phony burdens. Beware of false burdens. There is a tempting form of pride that disguises itself as a burden. Like a burden, it's disturbed by something that it perceives as wrong in the church. And that could be something that's legitimately wrong or it could be something that's really not wrong at all. That person is just mistaken. But instead of driving you to brokenness and humility on your face before God, it drives you to bitterness. You talk about it behind closed doors with those who will listen. It becomes a constant topic of your conversations. You convince yourself that what you're doing is not gossiping. You're just sharing your burden. You spend more time stewing about it than you do praying about it. More time talking to others about it than you do talking to God about it. It is contagious. It spreads like the plague. It will eat you up inside and it will do severe damage to the church. You say, Corey, how can you speak in such detail? Because I've carried a false burden like that. I've bought into its lies. I've spread it. It is ugly. And it is dishonoring to Christ. Listen, if this describes you, there's grace. There's grace. There's not grace in pride. There's grace in humility. Get on your face before God and repent. Go to those you've spread it to and tell them that you've sinned, you've done wrong. Don't ever forget that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We want to be a people who are in that place of, of favor with God, of receiving the grace of God. We want to be in that place of humility. We don't want to be in that place of pride where God's opposing us. <laughs> Revivals and reformations don't start with false burdens. They never have and they never will. <laughs> they start with a burden like Nehemiah's. A burden from God. A burden that brings humility. A burden that brings us to a place where we're on our faces seeking and fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Pray for that kind of burden. Second, fast for the burden. Now pay attention to the burdens that God places on your heart. Those are objects that you should probably fast for. Like Nehemiah fasted for the burden that God placed on his heart, the very people of God, the very city where God's name was tied to. Listen, if fasting is foreign to you, no, this isn't a, 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 a trying to make you feel guilty. If it's foreign to you, it's foreign to you. It's okay. But let me encourage you to start wickering this spiritual discipline into your life. Remember that the purpose of fasting is, is to intensify your spiritual desire, especially to intensify your prayer. Prayers, and so to focus your prayers on whatever it is you're fasting for. And so when that belly, again, when that belly begins to growl and ache, you think, oh yeah, I'm fasting for fill in the blank. And then that prods you to pray, and you spend that day or that time period praying, 
Again, you have to make sure it's a God-centered purpose. When your doctor tells you to go fast, that's not a biblical fast. No, pray for a God-centered purpose. You know what would be a great thing for you and I to fast about this week? It's to fast for the Roscas. To fast for them. Especially the kids, Garrett and Juliano, who are going back to school this week. That the Lord would, 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 would be with them and they would feel that closeness with Him as they go back into, I'm sure, not knowing what to expect. That Christ would be honored. That they would feel His presence and that He would meet them in their deepest need as the God of all comfort. That'd be a great thing to fast for. Secondly, another thing that would be a great to fast for this week would be maybe towards the end of the week, fast for the Mullet Festival this upcoming weekend as we are going to have a booth there. That Christ would be glorified there. That Christians would be edified and strengthened and that the lost would be found. That look, these are things that only God can do. Brian Dobler can't do that. Jeff Duncan can't do that. None of us can. So fast, fast for those things, things that God burdens you with, God that places on your heart. And don't fall in, by the way, this is so important to know, don't fall into the trap in, in, in thinking that you have to fast for days at a time. You know that there's no biblical prescription for the length of time that, that a fast needs to be? Right? You could fast for one meal. If that's too much for you, you could fast for a snack. You could do it for 24 hours. You could do it for 48 hours. You could do it with fasting from food alone or food and drink. Those of you who have, might have some health issues, you know, obviously take that into consideration. So pray for a burden and then fast for that burden, understanding that these activities, look, listen, these activities don't twist God's arm to do anything. God's not needing to do anything because you do something. But rather, what it does is it brings us into this sweeter, closer communion with our Father, who, you remember what Jesus said? Who will not give us a serpent when we ask for a fish. And will not give us a scorpion when we ask for an egg. In other words, God knows how to give us good gifts, and he, may He bless us with the good gift of seeing a great reformation in our day, if that be His will. Well, as we move to a close today, you know what a, that means when a preacher says that? As Jeff would say, nothing. It does mean something this time. As we move to a close, today we've been introduced to a man who would be greatly used by God. We saw that Nehemiah was burdened for his troubled people, that he was humbled to intercede for them, a man of integrity a cupbearer to the king who would be a great reformer. But as great as Nehemiah was, we're not meant to exalt him. He's meant to point us to the greater reformer, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he too was burdened for his troubled people who were enslaved to sin and death. He too was uh, humbled to intercede for them. In fact, he was humiliated. He left the heights of, of heaven in the perfect community of the Trinity and came and took on a human nature just like ours, flesh and blood just like ours, fully God and fully man. And he was humbled even to the place of not just becoming a man, but humbled to a place of being one of the most worst form, shameful forms of death, 
death on a cross. He too was a man of integrity, but of quite a different caliber than sinful Nehemiah. He was born under his own law, the Ten Commandments, responsible to, to keep them just like you and me. But where you and I failed, Jesus Christ succeeded, keeping his law perfectly in thought and word and deed for the entirety of his life. So that it could be said by the time he took his last breath on the cross that he had a perfect record of righteousness that he had earned for his people. He too was a cupbearer. But the cup that this cupbearer bore was the bitterest of cups. The cup of God's wrath for the sins of his people. While he was on the cross, he drank that cup dry as the eternal wrath of God that would have come crushing down on his people in hell forever instead came crushing down on Jesus on, in their place. <laughs> when justice had been satisfied, when the penalty had been paid for his people in full, Jesus cried out before he took his last breath, it is finished. The debt's been paid fully, completely, wholly. And he laid down his life all the way to the grave. That's how he interceded for his people, humbly interceded. But just as the scriptures had foretold for hundreds of years, and just as Jesus had been saying over and over and over and over and over again, it happened. On the third day, he defeated death and rose from the dead, something that only God can do, an undeniable sign from God that this gospel is 100% true. Guess what? Not only was Nehemiah a good reformer, Christ was the greatest of reformers. But it is the greatest of reformers. But this reformer won't bring temporary reform like Nehemiah. He'll bring permanent reform. He won't bring a, a, a partial reform. He'll bring the full reform. See, he has freed his people from the penalty of sin and from the enslaving power of sin. And the day is coming at his return where he will free us from the presence of sin, a holy people completely. His reforms will be universal over all creation, <laughs> lifting the curse and eradicating disease and decay and death and dwelling with his people forever. What was broken in the garden, restored and heightened in the new Jerusalem with Christ, with his people. Let me ask you this morning, do you know this Savior? I'm not asking you if you know about him. Plenty of people know about him that will be in hell forever. I'm asking, do you know him? You ask, how, how, how can I know if I know him? Because you've turned from your sin and you're trusting in him alone for your salvation. That's how you can know that you know him. I have to be, I have in my, it is my job to tell you the truth this morning, that you are in infinitely more danger than the people of Jerusalem that were living there without walls. Infinitely more danger than they are. See, your sin is offensive to a holy God. God is so good and holy and just that he hates everything that is wicked and evil and wrong. And guess what's it, wicked and evil and wrong? Me and you. Because we sin and we sin and we sin. There hasn't been a day in your life that you haven't sinned countless times. He says that the wages of sin is death. That the, that the, 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 uh, the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. And he's speaking of the second death there, which is hell forever, without escape. 
You see, right now you are like living in a place where you don't have any walls to protect you. (laughs) You need the perfect walls of righteousness to come and surround you. And today those perfect walls can be built for you by Christ, as already built by Christ and be given to you as a gift through repentance and faith in him. He's holding that out to you today. And the moment you repent and trust in him, the instant you do that, all your sins You can know that they're forgiven and his perfect record of obedience is surrounding you and those walls are impenetrable and you indeed will experience that great reformer will have become doing a great reformation in you. And herein we see the reality, even reformation, even on the individual level comes to us, comes to us just like the other reformation It begins when God lays a heavy burden on us for our sin and drives us to our knees in prayer, crying out for our God to save us. And he is merciful. He is merciful to save you. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you for the grace that you've given us this morning that we can see the humility of Nehemiah that points us to the humility of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've rebuked us with your word. Those of us who have have been living in pride and arrogance in regard to the visible body of Christ and the persecuted church and all those things. We thank you that you are forgiving God, (laughs) that in Christ we have forgiveness. That he can wash our sins away. Indeed, he has in full for all of his people the penalty. I pray today if there be any amongst us who are still living with a false burden that, Lord, you'd put that thing in the grave today. I pray for all of us, God, that we would be burdened. We would be burdened for wayward churches and wayward denominations and churches in parts of the world that are just barely hanging on because of the persecution. That we would be like Nehemiah that would see these places as a place of of people in trouble and shame. It would drive us to our knees, crying out to our God, Lay that burden on us, Lord. For we so want that burden. We want it because we know that it is how you tend to bring about great revivals and reformations. Lord, would you be pleased to do that in us today? Lord, I pray that you'd soften our hearts. Grant us grace to love each other well. And the Lord be willing to to give up our lives, to be in a place of discomfort, even to chase after those who are in those wayward places. We ask for your grace, Lord, today. We thank you for blessing us with your word. We thank you for Christ and being reminded of the greater Nehemiah, the great reformation that's coming. Turn our attention, Lord, to that and to him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are going